0: Our sermon text this morning is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. I want to pray for us before we open up this text. Uh, but as we go to prayer, I got a text message from Cliff Spain uh, just a few minutes ago. He said his uh, one year old grandchild uh, closed the door on his hand and uh, lost a finger. So he just asked that we pray uh, for that child. I don't remember their name. Um, some of you know them, but uh, let's just be praying for the Spains right now and for that little child. God, we, we rest in your mercy and goodness right now. Um, this event is a reminder of the fallenness of the world and the pain and the suffering that's so seemingly so random and, and unnecessary and gratuitous. And, and yet in the midst of this, God, we know that you are in control wise and good and so father i pray that you would protect this little child and heal them and i pray that you would uh that you would just be with mom's heart dad's heart and grandma and grandpa and pray that you would give them your peace and uh, that you would use even this for their good and for your glory God, this morning, I also want to lift up those who today are still dealing with grief. A month, a year, 10 years after loss, 20 years. It doesn't go away. It's a trial every day. And we know that there are many who are freshly facing this this year. So, Father, I pray that your church would be a comfort to your little lambs who are suffering in this way today. God, I pray as well that as we turn our attention to a passage of Scripture that confronts our modern culture, that confronts the modern church, that when we're faced with a choice that by your spirit you would empower us as a church and as individuals to choose the better path. To say no to the world. To say no to mediocrity. To say no to half-heartedness. To say no to riding the fence. And to say yes to responding to the sacrifice of Christ as a living sacrifice, committed 100% to him. God, I pray that you would expose, shine the light on our hearts, that you would refine us, and that we would, if there's anything there, That's keeping us from fully obeying you and being used in your service as a church and as individuals and as families. I pray that you would clear it away today. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I graduated from high school and headed off to college, I made a really big decision. I decided this was so big. Such a huge decision. I decided I wasn't going to get into a serious relationship with a girl for at least a year. I had dated a few young ladies in high school and... Uh, When I was in the middle of each one of those relationships, they felt really serious, and then they ended, and feelings got hurt, and I felt like the time that I had spent with those young ladies was sort of wasted, and I was disoriented, and I was confused, and so I had resolved in my heart, I'm going to avoid that sort of thing for a little while. And for a few months, I succeeded. I made friends with a lot of new people, and some of them were girls. And we would spend some time together, we would eat a meal together, or Uh, uh, spend time together as a group. That was pretty much where it stopped. Uh, uh, I would take a girl on a date here and there, but I kind of made it clear, like, we're not going to get serious anytime soon. Many hearts were broken. (laughs) I'm just joking. But in all seriousness, that did not work for very long. Uh, because there was this young lady that I worked with and who, who became my friend. Her name was Mandy. And the closer that we became, the more time we spent with each other. And before long, we were meeting each other for lunch in the dining hall. And then after that, we started to make plans to get together in the snack shop and, and do our homework at the same table. And uh, then it got to the point where we both, I think, sort of knew that there was a mutual romantic interest there. And I found myself in a quandary. Now, the way my wife will tell it she'll she'll say i don't I think she left i I was hoping that she'd be here to confirm or deny, but I think the way she would say it is like I wasn't sure whether I really liked her or not, and that wasn't the case at all. It was more just I had made this commitment and and yet I liked this girl a lot and and I had to make this decision i mean here I am, a freshman in college I've got like three and a half years left and yet I really have this interest in this young lady. And so for a little while, I tried to do nothing. I tried to just keep things the way they were for a while. But guess what? This is a little bit of advice for you young men. That doesn't work. <laughs> you can't just keep, you can't control it for for one thing. And, and, and I realized I had a choice. I, I could either move forward and try to take things in a more romantic direction, or I could move backward and, Uh, Pull away and if I tried to keep things the way that they were it was just kind of going to unravel and fall apart It just wasn't going to work. So I realized that if I didn't want to lose this girl forever I had to make a commitment I was going to have to risk my feelings invest my time devote my energies to pursuing a romantic relationship With a young lady and and take all the other options off the table I was going to have to make a commitment to her Otherwise, it was all going to fall apart altogether. And the rest, of course, is history. I I made that commitment. You know, relationships thrive on commitment. Did you know that? People who keep all of their relationships casual, everybody else at a distance, those are lonely people. Couples who decide, hey, we're just going to live together not really... Make a commitment long-term. Statistics show this is science. Research are generally less happy and less stable people. Kids who have to grow up in this type of family struggle a lot. Relationships thrive on commitment. And if that is true in the realm of romance, then how much more is it the case in the local church? In fact, it's one of the biggest problems in the American church today. Tom Rayner, the founder and CEO of Church Answers and the former president of LifeWay Christian Resources, writing in a blog post less than a week ago, said this. If your church is typical, over one half of your members attend one out of four weeks or less. I'm convinced that the decreasing commitment of church members to their local churches, is one of the greatest problems in our church, in our culture today. More than polarized politics, more than petty social media, more than the divisions related to a pandemic. You see, healthy churches are positive forces in culture and communities. They serve and love others. They unite families. They communicate the gospel where one finds true hope and peace. But when church members begin to lessen their commitment to their churches, those congregations become weaker. They become unhealthy. And unhealthy churches are bad for the communities they serve and the culture in which they live. That paragraph, folks, is stunning. For this reason, I mean, here's a guy who is well-respected. If you, if you look up, you know, who's the most respected church health consultants in the nation? He'd be right there at the top of the list. And he says, this is the number one problem with churches today. And yet, folks, the solution is so simple. Just be more committed. That is striking to me that that's where we are as a church, as a nation. And apparently this is a nationwide problem today, and if we're going to be the kind of church that God intends us to be, then we have to decide as a group and as individuals that it's not going to be the way things go here. We want to be a faithful church. We want to be a a praying church. We want to be a grateful church, a generous church. And yes, folks, we must be. If we are going to be all that God has for us, we must be a committed church. Jesus told Peter, I will build my church, not my seminary or my college, not my nonprofit Christian charity, not my counseling and recovery center, not my Christian music label, not my campus outreach ministry, my church. The church is the body of Christ the pillar and the ground of the truth, the institution that is storming the gates of hell itself. And I'll just warn you, I am jealous for the church. I am zealous for the church because Jesus is jealous for His church. Do not try to use it for your personal financial gain. Do not put it down. Do not despise it. It is the treasured possession of the Lord Jesus and He alone is its Lord and its leader. He identifies with it. Don't knock it. No, we must be a committed church and we must be committed to the local church. But what does that look like? What does it look like to be a committed church? I think a great place to go in order to find an answer to that question is the book of Acts, the passage that Andrew just read just a moment ago. The Jerusalem church was not perfect. That's the church that was described in Acts chapter 2. But it was a church in which the people were committed to the Lord Jesus, and to one another. And this passage offers us four spheres in which our commitment to the church takes shape. Four areas of life that require us to be committed to the church. So what I want to do is to look at these four spheres one by one, and then we're going to see the result. We're going to see at the end of the chapter what happens when Christians commit. When they commit to their church and to the Lord of the church. So notice with me in the first place that if we're going to be a committed church, then we must be committed in terms of our activity. We must be committed in terms of our activity. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves. They committed themselves they poured themselves into four activities, just four activities. The, the translation I just read doesn't highlight the verbal tense of, uh, of that, that verb. They devoted themselves, doesn't highlight the, the tense of the verb, but it's very important. This is an imperfect linking verb combined with a present tense participle. You say, what in the world does that mean? Here's what that means. That means that the emphasis that Luke is putting out there is on continuous action. This is something they were continually doing. They were continually, habitually devoting themselves to to these four things. Continually. They they, they were committed to four simple activities. They sat under the teaching of the apostles. At the time, of course, that meant that they were physically present with the apostles. They were living there at the time. uh, Peter, James, John, and the rest. They heard them open their mouth and teach. Nowadays, of course, the apostles are gone. Uh, They are, most of them, martyred and awaiting the day when Christ will return to establish his everlasting kingdom on the earth. But we do have their writings. It's called the New Testament. 27 books that explain the gospel of Jesus Christ and its entailments. This means that today, we can do the same thing. We can continually devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles. They were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. We use this term to refer to a big meal Taken in the church fellowship hall, we have fellowship. That means we get together and we eat a lot of food. That's what we're going to do next week. We have a fellowship meal. And I hope you know that the word fellowship in Scripture means a lot more than just eating a meal together. It does include that, thankfully. (laughs) But it means more than that. It means sharing. It means living as a part of a family. It means submitting to one another in Christian love. It means confessing our faults to one another. It means praying for one another, honoring one another, showing hospitality to one another. It means recognizing one another's gifts. It means appreciating the leaders and the pastors and the elders and and testing everything that they say in in comparison with the Word of God and obeying their leadership when it aligns with what God has already said. That's fellowship. Fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, to the Lord's table, to communion, constantly reminding themselves through Christ's ordinance that their forgiveness was complete because of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. They were devoted to prayer, laboring day by day together in thanksgiving and praise and supplication and in song, and they were faithfully approaching the throne of grace on a daily basis, praying together. They were devoting themselves and calling out to the Father theologians have called these four things listed in Acts 2.42 the means of grace. Uh, That is, these four activities, they become sort of a fuel that energize our growth in Christian living. Uh, People who devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers find themselves growing stronger in their faith, more committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about your physical body. Think about your body. You want to be healthy. You know what you need to do. Like, it's not complicated. Uh, you, you replace the, the processed sugars and the, you know, midnight snacks with moderation and lean protein and vitamin-rich vegetables and healthy grains. You drink plenty of water. You, you get your legs pumping. You, you work up a sweat. You devote yourself to it. You form healthy habits. You don't drop them just because they aren't working overnight. You say, Jake, now you're really going after me, Okay. But listen, here's the point. You know what to do. It's not glamorous. But it works. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the reason why we struggle with commitment in the church. One of the reasons why is instead of continually devoting ourselves and committing ourselves to the things that are listed out in Scripture that are very simple, that most Christians know about, have available to them, Instead of devoting ourselves to these straightforward means of grace gifted to the church to help us grow in godliness, we've embraced gimmicks. These snake oil solutions that are hawked by carnival barkers that promise something better. Like, we, like if you just do this one thing that you couldn't find in the Bible yourself, it's only the experts that know about it. If you just do that one thing, that's going to make you grow in Christ. No. You know what the Bible says. It's very simple. You're not going to get fit just by taking a magic pill or scheduling a surgery. And guess what? The church isn't going to grow. It's not going to have a long-lasting impact on the world by swerving off of the narrow path and onto the broad ways of the world or by, quote-unquote, improving on the methods that Jesus has laid out in Scripture. Like, Jesus, let me help you out a little bit. No, he he knew what he was doing when he established these things. No, I'm asking you on the basis of Scripture to make a commitment to God's church to simple obedience why because that's god's plan a and there is no plan b you know what happens when we follow a man or a movement instead of just following the lord jesus christ and what he what the, the picture that he paints in scripture that man that movement that's those things are going to steer you off course Just look at any man-centered or movement-centered ministry over the long term. Lots of converts in the beginning, lots of hype, lots of things going on, but you fast forward 10 or 20 years, and those so-called new believers, they they aren't believing anything like the gospel of Jesus Christ because it was never about Jesus in the beginning. It was all about that one guy. You see, when we abandon the body of Christ because it feels inefficient or it's not flashy or because it's not palatable to the world, or because my feelings got hurt, or because I'm a little bit embarrassed to bring my friends to this place because some of the people in the pews are weird. When we have that type of mentality, then what we think we are building will come crashing down. You can take it to the bank. Every quote-unquote ministry that separates itself from the church is ultimately going to fall and fail to the great delight of the devil. So here's what I mean. Campus ministry is great, but it can't replace the church. Feeding the homeless is important, but that can't take the place of the church of Jesus Christ. Recovery ministry is critical, but it doesn't take the place of the church. Folks, listen to me. Personal evangelism, one-on-one sharing the gospel, it's so critical. We all need to be doing it, but we can't, it can't replace the gathered church. Camp ministry or revival ministry is awesome, but they can't can't take the place of the local church no we ought to be doing all those things they are wonderful but they need to be in the context of a family of God in Christ Jesus said I will build my church in the moment that's not always pretty it's not always immediately impressive from a worldly point of view but listen it is the basket into which Jesus Christ our Savior has put all of the eggs And if we can learn to embrace the simplicity and obedience and the straightforwardness of devoting ourselves to the activity of the church of Jesus Christ, to preaching, to fellowship, to praying, to the celebration of the ordinances, then folks, there is no stopping the church. Let's be committed to the church of Jesus Christ in terms of our our activity, but secondly, we must also be committed in terms of our affection, in terms of our affection. Uh, Look at verse 43. All came upon every soul. All came upon every soul. The word simply means fear. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when Solomon speaks about the fear of the Lord. If you read through the book of of Proverbs and Solomon talks about the fear of the Lord, it's the very same word used here. To say that it's just reverence or respect is not enough. These people are actually shaken to the core. Their affections are transformed by what they're hearing. If the means of grace are sort of the fuel that feeds the fire that helps us to grow in Christ, then this is kind of the feeling that results from that fuel. It's the sort of thing that happens when we have a true encounter with the Lord. What happened was this. The apostles spoke a spirit-inspired message of judgment and salvation, and the people heard this, and they were cut to the, cut to the heart. Uh, the, these people who had been worshiping God, but they didn't realize that Jesus Christ was actually the Messiah, and they were struck with this, like, thunderbolt of truth, and immediately they were overcome by fear. You say, why fear? Why was that the emotion that rose up in their hearts as a result of their encounter with Jesus? It's because of what these experiences taught them. I mean, think about what happened in their hearts. They, they, were, they learned that they had been just a hair's breadth away from eternal judgment. They learned that their Jewish heritage didn't mean a thing apart from Christ. They learned that the worst crime they or anyone else had ever committed, the very thing that should have landed them in the deepest pit of hell was the thing that God was going to use to redeem a people to himself, the the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh boy. They learned that everything they had counted as an asset was actually a liability. They were utterly, completely, freely, permanently forgiven and welcomed. They were just blown away. I mean, think about it this way. Have you ever been in a near miss? Uh, You you almost were in a car accident, and it was a near miss, and you realized, uh, you know, I was almost just a pancake. What do you feel at that moment? You feel kind of like a a fear, like a, whoa. (laughs) Have you ever been at the mercy of a parent or a spouse or even a judge or a jury? And they showed mercy and kindness instead of what you knew you deserved. You're you're grateful, but you have this like fear in your heart, like whoa, that was close. I don't want to waste this opportunity, this mercy that I've been given. This is this is kind of like the fear of the Lord. We encounter God, and it's like whoa, I had no idea. Proverbs eight thirteen says, "The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil." If you've ever experienced this sort of thing, you know it's pure and it's good and it's holy and you want more of it, you long for it. It's not a terror that the Lord is going to somehow just get sick of you and lose his temper and and fly off the handle and and hit you or something like that. No, it is the settled conviction of the heart that God is going to accomplish his purposes of judgment and salvation and, and that your life's goal, your one true joy is to be right with this God like it takes over everything else. I'm talking about times like, have you ever had the experience in corporate worship when you're singing songs and people are reading Scripture and the Spirit is just so at work in your heart and someone gets up and opens the Scripture and they read the sermon text and the preacher doesn't even need to start preaching because the Spirit of God is already convicting you and you know how you're supposed to respond. Fear came upon every soul. You want to know why we lack commitment in the local church? Maybe it's a fear problem. Maybe it's a feeling problem. Uh, We're more afraid of other people's opinions than we are of displeasing our Savior. Maybe it's because we have successfully domesticated God in our own minds and in the minds of our children and in the minds of our neighbor. Uh, When I was a children's pastor, I became convinced part of our problem, in our church at least, was that we were trying every single week to make church fun. Like, let's just come on to church. Come to Children's Church. It'll be fun. We're going to give out candy. We're going to give out prizes. We're going to have lots of fun. And, and, and a whole generation going back decades has been taught that their church should be fun. We, we're taught this in Children's Church, and then we pull it through into the student ministry, and then by the time we're grown ups, we think, well, I walked into church today. It wasn't very fun. What's wrong? Folks, we have got to get it in our minds that there are more categories in life than fun and boring. I mean, was it fun? Do you think it was fun for those young men storming the beaches of Normandy on D-Day? Was that fun? No. Was it a life-defining event? Was it a country-defining, a world-defining event that led to lots of wonderful things? Yes! there are more categories in life than just fun. And when we come to worship the Savior, when we commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, fun is not the word that I would use. It's wonderful. It's engaging. It's amazing. But we're encountering the living God. There's more fear than there is fun. When the elders and I gather on Sunday mornings and start our Sunday morning with prayer we don't pray we pray for you but we don't pray that you that you have fun when you come to church today no we pray that you would have a direct personal encounter with the living god The God who grew the mountains with a word and can explode them with a snap of a finger. The God whose creative power burns at the blazing core of a billion stars. The God who sees everything that you do. The God who is so immense that he's present with the fullness of his being in every atom in the universe. The God who shows mercy to a thousand generations and will by no means clear the guilty. The God who has promised to sentence the devil and his armies to endless torment. The God who poured out his holy and infinite anger onto his eternal son at the cross. The God who defeated death. When we meet that God, fear comes on every soul. By the way, uh, some of you are here and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. And first of all, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. I'm glad you're here. And I just want you to know that I, it's our highest aim to invite you to turn away from your rebellious sin and to give yourselves entirely to Jesus and be born again to a living hope and, and to have a real personal relationship with the living God. Like you can have, a, you have You have the opportunity to be called the son or the daughter of God. And it's free. It's already been paid for at a great cost. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in your place and be saved. If we're going to be a committed church, then we have to be committed in terms of our activities, but we also have to be uh, committed in terms of our affections. We have to give him our hearts. So plunge yourself and your life and your your whole being into relationship with him and be transformed. In the third place, notice with me that we must also be committed in terms of our attachments. We need to be committed in terms of our attachments. Uh, So look with me in verses 44 and 45. The new believers in Jerusalem had committed themselves to be fueled by the means of grace. That activity produced a specific feeling of fear and awe. But notice from these verses that it also bore fruit in some really radical ways. Read them with me. All who believed were together and had all things common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Think about that culture. Think about what was taking place. This is radical, friends. New believers in Jesus, people who already had a belief system, people who already had presuppositions about their values in life, people who already had family and friends, all these categories already had things in them, they started to make a dramatic change in terms of their attachments. They began to spend time together constantly. They grew more attached to their fellow believers and less attached to their stuff. They actually took their possessions and sold them and gave the proceeds to people who were needy. They instantly became a family. They were completely committed in terms of their attachments, less attached to stuff, more attached to their brother and sister in Christ. This is something, friends, that always happens. When someone really begins to grasp what he's been given in Christ, there is no reality, listen, you can mark it down, there is no reality in which a, a believer is a growing Christian and growing more like Jesus who's getting more attached to the things of this life and less attached to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are opposites. No, when we grow in Christ, what's going to happen is I'm less attached to the things of this life, I'm more attached to my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's always the way it goes. Some of you, just quite frankly, you're moving in the opposite direction and it is not evidence that you're moving in the right direction you're giving in to fatigue, the temptations of the world, someone needs to tell you that you are going the wrong way. It's like you're trying to score in the wrong basket. Like we're all on the same team together, and, and here's our basket over here, and we're trying to score and beat the other team, and you're shooting at this basket over here. Like you're going the wrong way. Turn around. Because when you commit yourself to Jesus and the church that he promised to build, you're always going to be less attached to the things of this life and more attached to God's people. Now, typically, we read a passage like this. We read about the details of what took place, and we immediately begin to form all these sorts of objections in our minds. Like, hey, Jake, actually, this kind of sounds like communism. I've heard people say that. Like, was this communism? Because I know I'm against that. <laughs> no, it's, it's not communism. Um... Are you telling me I'm supposed to liquidate all of my assets, sell everything, and then give a bunch of money to people who have, have needs so that we all have the same amount of money? Is that what you're saying that I need to do? What happens after that? Yeah, if everybody did that, we wouldn't have anywhere to live. We probably wouldn't, probably wouldn't go well. That's not what this passage is calling all of us to do. Now, some of you, God is calling you to make a radical change like that, like quit your job, sell what you have, sell your house, and go and do what God's called you to do. And if that's what the Spirit of God is telling you, then you need to obey. But the fact that not all of us are required to sell all of our stuff and make a vow of poverty isn't supposed to be a free pass for us to just live however we want and not make any change at all. No, what this passage tells us is that if we're going to move forward as a church, if we're going to be a committed church, then each and every member must be vigilant to hold his possessions loosely and his brothers tightly. I'm sorry, but the souls of your neighbors are more important than the financial status of your nest egg. I mean, I hope we all realize that. It's so easy to say, isn't it? But it's so much harder, more difficult to go beyond mere lip service and live like that's true. You know, if you survey the history of civilization, contrary to the way that the world wants to rewrite it, uh, the biggest, most important strides in the history of human rights, and, and I'm serious about this, you can check it, and in the alleviation of suffering, took place when believers in Jesus Christ decided that human beings were more important than money. I mean, think back, look back on history. I know the world wants to tell you, oh, Christianity has caused a lot of suffering for the weak and powerful. And, and it's true. Uh, greedy people have used the cross. They've used Jesus. They've used religion as a cover for their greediness to make excuses for their oppression and their pillage. They are always going to do that. We know that. Satan, he masquerades as an angel of light in order to get done what he wants to get done. But think about someone like William Wilberforce, rich, super smart, party animal, cares only about having fun and getting the most pleasure out of the here and now, and then he meets Jesus Christ and everything begins to change. All of a sudden, he couldn't care less about his money and his popularity. He has one goal now. He just wants to abolish slavery, and he gives the rest of his life to, to working towards the end of slavery, and, and by the time he gets to the end of his life, he has done so much in working toward that end, and God uses him. Why does that happen? Because he was committed to Jesus, and that commitment reached his attachments. He became less attached to his stuff. And more attached to his fellow human being. If nothing else comes out of this stewardship campaign that we're walking through right now, my prayer is that each one of us has a reckoning with the God who owns it all and decides in and and, and that everyone would decide in his or her heart that we're going to care more about the mission, more about the body of Christ more about our brothers and sisters, more about souls than we do about the paycheck or the car in the driveway or the IRA contribution. I mean, isn't that a low-hanging fruit, like easy, we all need to make sure that we're doing that sort of thing? That we're willing to form a life, a habit of living simple, lean lives in order to enjoy the reality that it is more blessed to give Than it is to receive, and I see all of us wrestling with that. So many of you have shared with me your own uh, time of 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 kind of struggling as a family to understand and discern what the Lord wants you to do, and it just makes me so glad. I'll just be honest with you; it makes me so glad because I know that if you give yourself to the Lord in this way, it is absolutely going to transform your life for the better. I mean, one hundred percent. We must be committed in terms of our activities, our affections, our attachments. But fourthly, we must be committed in terms of our attendance. Uh, You might say, if you look at verses 46 and 47, that these verses describe not just the fuel or the feeling or the fruit of their commitment, but the furtherance of their commitment. This is how they pulled this into everyday life. This is how they made a lifestyle of commitment. So read it with me. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Let me just make four quick observations about these two verses. First of all, notice the frequency of their commitment. Did you catch it? Day by day. This wasn't, they, this wasn't something that they did if they didn't have anything better to do. It was constant. It was something they did all the time. The church family was an integral part of everyday life, not just one hour, two, or three times a month. They did it all the time, day by day. The writer to, he, to the Hebrews makes the same emphasis in Hebrews chapter three. He says, exhort one another when? Every day so that you don't fall by the deceitfulness of sin. Not just once in a while. Notice the comprehensiveness of their commitment. They met in the temple and in their homes. You might say they came to gathered worship and they belonged to a community group. Why? Well, because they understood that both of those types of gatherings have different functions. When we get together as a church in this kind of public gathering, it's sort of a preview of the end times gathering when we'll all, with all believers of all tribes and nations and languages and times, get together around the throne and will truly be one in Christ. The small group gathering uh, gets us uh, to, to, to know one another at a deeper level and, and to challenge each other to be faithful in our walk. But uh, you can see that these believers in this Jerusalem church, this baby church, they had this comprehensive commitment. They were going to get together in the large group gathering and then they were going to get together as well in their homes. Notice thirdly, their commitment was focused on God. They were praising God. The the gathering was always ultimately about God. It was not about them. And then, fourthly, their commitment was comprehensible to their neighbors. They were living uh, in favor with all the people, they were conscious of their testimony toward outsiders. And, And, friends, I know that I've hit on this topic several times in the last few months, but it is important and it's under threat. A faithful church, a healthy church, is a church in which believers prioritize the gathering of other believers. They're not islands to themselves. Uh, And I could spit and stomp and make everybody feel guilty. But at the end of the day, if you are committed to the body of Christ, if you are committed to Jesus Christ, then you will make it a priority to be here. You will make it a priority to be present. You will plan for it. You'll set aside other important things in order to be here. You will walk through a little bit of pain in order to get here. Amen! And if you do that, you'll find that all these other commitments are a lot easier to do. Just make the commitment to be here. (laughs) Folks, God's desire for Indian Creek is that we're a committed church, that we're committed in terms of our activity, our affections, our attachments, our attendance. But what happens when a church decides that they're going to be all in? Notice where it leads at the end of verse 47. Notice commitment, watch what happens. Commitment paves the way for for further growth. See what happens? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's what happens. When God's people commit themselves to God's church, God blesses. When God's people commit themselves to God's church, God blesses. Churches that are little more than a religious club, that get bored with the simple gospel and the preaching of the apostles, that give in to gimmicks, that value stuff over people, that don't have a culture of faithfulness and gathering, you know what happens? They don't thrive. They don't do well over time. They, they might do okay for a time, but once the newness wears off or a leader leaves it all comes crashing down, but friends, that does not have to be our story. That doesn't have to be the way things are around here. In fact, I would go so far as to say that given the circumstances, it seems like God is creating in our region, like open your eyes, then we have, we have reached a time when, when we must commit. We have got to commit because, I mean, just think about what is happening in our region, guys, right now. There are over 400 homes going in in East Minerwells, or East of Minerwells. The fields are ready for harvest, and they're about, to, they're about to be even more so. There are dozens of people moving into our region month by month. Are we ready? Are we committed? Are we ready for this blessing? I'll be honest with you. I'm not, I am not really interested in collecting a paycheck from a religious club. I'm not really interested in being the person who just finds nice things to say at weddings and funerals and, and maybe peppers a little bit of spiritual talk and scripture so that you feel better about the things you already believe. I, I don't want to be a party to a culture that exists just to keep the lights on in the tradition alive. I mean, I want more than that. Don't you want more than that? Yes. Folks, It's time. It's time to make a commitment. If you've been around for a while, if you're new today, it's your first time, second, third time, take the time you need to check us out. Don't just jump into something you don't really understand. I'd love to help you with that. But those of you who've been around for a while, you know what we're about. You know what the Bible says. You know what we're aiming for. The only only question is this. What about you? Are you going to commit to this or not? Are you going to give your life to this or not? Are you going to be on board with the church of Jesus Christ or not? So it is time, folks, to respond. It's time to make a commitment.